This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration has released details of what are known as class deviations, allowable changes in the federal acquisition regulation to take into account the ongoing COVID pandemic and what contractors have to do for their own safety and that of federal employees they encounter. Here with Industry Reaction, the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, there's a lot to unpack here. And give us your take on the read of those class deviations, which I guess there was some opportunity for industry comment on. Now they have been finalized in the last few days. What are they telling us and what are they not telling us? Thanks so much, Tom, for asking. And I would like to preface my remarks by saying the Biden administration has done quite a bit of outreach to industry, both through the associations and then through our member companies. And so Professional Services Council, or PSC, is not the only industry association that's been feeding back into the Office of Management and Budget, Department of Defense, and others. I would say that we were somewhat disappointed a bit with the class deviations that came out late last week. They were signed out on September 30th, resulting from a document that came out on the 24th from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. I'll just refer to it as the task force. That task force put out 14 pages of guidance to address contractor safety protocols, one on vaccinations, two on masking, distancing, and three on how all of this is going to be coordinated within each company. The class deviations really reflect implementation of those protocols, and it affects predominantly services and contracting or construction contractor companies. And there are carve-outs for several different kinds of contractors. And I would say one thing that we were looking at in anticipation, we were going to be looking for how exactly would this apply to companies Would there be a test option or is it solely vaccination or um, lack of employment, you know, either resigning or termination of someone's employment? And I would say that DOD came out with something, GSA came out with something. In some interpretations, they are internally conflicting and absolutely confusing. And so we are still engaging with those government organizations I mentioned earlier to make sure we can get clarity on exactly who this applies to, when it applies to them, and what exemptions are on the table. And you mentioned construction companies. What about product companies, and especially what about services companies that are the ones that are actually on-premise and entering federal agencies with badges? You know, there are rules and requirements for folks who want to access a government facility. DOD put something out in early September regarding, you know, if you want to get into the Pentagon, you have to show proof of vaccination or an attestation form or be diverted over to be tested periodically if you were not vaccinated or unwilling to say that you were vaccinated. So regarding the class deviations that came out last week, those are specific to services and construction contractors. There is an exemption for products, manufacturers, or contracts solely for the provision or manufacture of products. That is something we at the Professional Services Council are asking questions about because to us, that creates an unlevel playing field. And I'll go into that just briefly if I might. That is to say, If you are a services contractor and you have high demand, highly skilled employees who don't want to get vaccinated, they might very well resign and go to work for a products company. It creates a potential for human capital flight from some of these services contractors who are being forced to vaccinate, whereas products companies are not. There are other carve-outs as well. Um, Some of them you know, one might argue makes sense in terms of, you know, if you're below the simplified acquisition threshold, so you're a contractor, but your contract is worth less than $250,000, this does not impact them. If you're a member of uh, an Indian tribe and an answer to a different sovereignty than the United States government, this does not impact you. But we are asking questions about the difference in 
treatment for services versus products contractors. And I wonder what this means to companies that are both services and product contractors. I'm thinking, say, a company like Dell, one half, they do a lot of consulting for the government. They do a lot of program development, application development, and services, professional services areas. And then they have this big manufacturing arm that sells a lot of the laptops and desktops that government uses by the millions. So is it possible to discern what a company like that has to do where you have both sides of the house? So that's a great observation, Tom, because there has been a general government trend to procure things as a service where they used to buy products. For example, IT services versus products or software as a service and not as a product. There are lots of companies out there that are both products and services. Our understanding and our read of both the guidance from the task force and the class deviations that came out is that if you have a services contract or subcontract, that is a covered contract and you have to be vaccinated or qualify for a medical disability or religious exemption. Or you know, if you're in a facility where work is being undertaken on behalf of the U.S. government, everyone in that facility has to be vaccinated, regardless of whether you're on that contract or just working in connection with that contract. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And I guess, would you agree that the administration is at least trying to make that distinction between companies that ship in things in FedEx boxes or postal service boxes, as opposed to those companies where you're working alongside the government? It would on its face of it, but you have to remember that the objective of this policy and the reason the executive order was signed out was to increase vaccination rates. And you don't increase vaccination rates by making whole classes of contractors exempt and making an uneven playing field like we just discussed. And so at that point, you have to wonder, is it because they wanted to be able to access commercial off-the-shelf technologies or something of that like? I would say, again, if your goal is increased vaccination rates, this is not how you build that railroad, so to speak. Sure, yeah. It's a hell of a way to run a railroad. (laughs) Good point. And let me ask you this. Among the members of the Professional Services Council, the companies, what's your sense of the degree to which their employees are just going ahead and getting vaccinated? I would imagine that among professional services companies doing consulting, financial work, software development, you're going to get a population that is generally going to be vaccinated for their own sake, regardless of whether it's a mandate. It's true. When the president announced in early September that this was coming down and that we would be seeing guidance and class deviations on this, particularly, companies have, in some sense, had their own internal mandates to be vaccinated. I would say also that we at PSC recently asked our membership and polled them and asked them, how many of your employees have resigned or separated from your company? How many of them have voiced the intent to do so if this is going to be a requirement? We've also asked on the recruitment side of your candidate pool, is this a real point of anxiety for folks? Are they asking about vaccine requirements or not? And so one issue that has also come up when we've polled our member companies, you know, some of them say, hey, we had this vaccine mandate in place before this class deviation came out. It's not going to be a problem for us. Others are saying we're going to lose half of our workforce. And so that's a real concern. The other concern is There are exemptions for medical disability or for religious reasons. There's not a lot of guidance from the government about what constitutes a religious exemption in this case. And it could be that companies can choose to accept or not accept an application for a religious exemption. And that does open them up to lawsuits. So one thing we are also pushing, in addition to, hey, can we not have a level playing field about who is subject to this mandate? But how can we indemnify companies from lawsuits 
companies that are just trying to comply with the U.S. government requirement, but facing lawsuits from their employees who don't want to be vaccinated. We've asked for indemnification or consideration thereof, uh, and the government has turned around and said, well, you could apply for recourse to reimburse for illegal fees. But unfortunately, that does no good to a company that's already gone bankrupt because of lawsuits. And so that's a real concern as well. And have you seen any lawsuits actually happen at this point, or is that just a theoretical fear insofar as you can tell among your constituents? When we've polled our member companies, they've indicated that they've heard of lawsuits. I don't know of any that have been filed to date because, again, the vaccine mandate is not actually a mandate just yet. We just got the class deviation a handful of days ago. All right. And those are then final, these class deviations. There's the comment period came and went in a hurry, by the way. You implied that in the beginning. We didn't talk about that issue, but there wasn't really that much opportunity to really get into it with the administration. They just listened briefly. But now it's do or die. It is do or die. I would say they are following the FAR process by making these part of the federal acquisition regulations going forward. But the class deviations are in effect until that's become a final regulation. And so it is do or die. These are going to be part of the contracts going forward. And there will be a contract clause within the FAR going forward after a comment period on that. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to those class deviations at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, 
I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, 
folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.